Thank you for listening to Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service, and welcome back. Here's our next story story from today's Des Moines Register, and it's going to be Susan again. From the sports page, on the front page, there is an article about Iowa-owned horse fourth at the Kentucky Derby. Catching Freedom, a horse owned by Ankeny businessman Dennis Alba, finished fourth in Saturday's Kentucky Derby in Louisville, Kentucky. Mystic Dan won the 150th Derby. I Yeah, Mystic Dan? I think it's Dawn. Mystic Dawn won the 150th Derby at Churchill Downs, keeping Alba's Derby entrant out of the winner's circle. Sierra Leone was second, and Forever Young finished third. Alba Family Stables purchased Catching Freedom for $575,000 at the 2022 Keeneland September Yearling Sale. Kentucky-bred Catching Freedom, sired by Constitution and whose dam is Catch by Drift, won his maiden race October 1st at Churchill Downs and opened his three-year season January 1st with a victory in the Smarty Jones at Oak Lawn Park. After a third-place finish February 17th in the Grade 2 Risen Star at Fairgrounds, behind Sierra Leone and track Phantom, Catching Freedom bounced back to win the Louisiana Derby. Although Alba has been has had seven derby entrants, and he's still looking for a victory. The highest finisher was Angel of Empire, which finished third in 2023. Brody's Cause was seventh in 2016. J-Boy's Echo was 15th in the 2017 Derby, and Free Drop Billy was 16th in 2008. It wasn't immediately known if any of Alba's horses will run in the second leg of the Triple Crown, the Preakness Stakes, on May 18th at Pimlico Race Course in Baltimore. Alba owns a billion-dollar international pesticide company headquartered in Ankeny. Alba mortgaged his home to start the company. He operates the stable with racing manager and son-in-law, Jason Louch. And next is a, a short article about how Clark shows how much of a game changer she can be. Caitlin Clark is used to being pressure is used to the pressure of game winning shots. She did it multiple times while she was a superstar in college. Her game-winning buzzer, three beat, um, buzzer beater three-pointer helped Iowa end the regular season with a win over Indiana in 2023, and she did the same thing against a pesky Michigan State team in 2024. She's been a, the subject of viral moments for the best reasons, and the Fever coaching staff knew that. So after Wings guard Erica Agonbali hit a three to put the wings up three points with three seconds left in Friday's WNBA exhibition game in Dallas, the Fever called a timeout and drew up that play. This time, it didn't work out. 
Clark was so heavily guarded, she couldn't get the ball out of um, the inbound and ended up getting it with less than a second left. She launched an off-balance shot, but it fell short, and the Fever lost 79-76. to It was one of those scenarios where the Wings knew exactly what was going to happen. They knew with Fever All-Star Kelsey Mitchell out with an ankle injury, Clark was the only one on the court that could consistently make shots in those scenarios. When Mitchell comes back, that could change. Quote, she's a player that has ice in her veins, Coach Christie Side said. Like Erika, she was 0 for 6 from 3 and then hits the game winner. But we'll have Kelsey Mitchell out there who will who has the same ability, and that just changes how people guard. You know, when you have several options, you can get a three off in three seconds. <coughs> that missed shot doesn't take anything away from Clark's professional debut. She led the fever in scoring her in her inaugural WNBA game, dropping 12, 21 points. She started 4 of 6 from the three-point range, but cooled off to a 5 of 13 clip. Both her 21 points and 5 threes made are a fever record for a debuting rookie. But Clark wasn't looking at numbers in her first game. She was more focused on making sure she didn't stray from the type of game she's known for. With her step-back, long-range three-pointers, one of which went over... defensive P-O-T-Y Natasha Howard's head, she was true to herself. I think there's going to be a lot to go back and look at and learn from because a lot of it's kind of different from college, Clark said, just from, you know, a technique standpoint or, you know, scheme standpoint. And what we do is not always going to be the same. So I think those are the biggest things, but I think overall I just played really hard and that's always something to be proud of. There's a transition period all WNBA rookies need to go through. They're coming off a grueling college season and entering an entirely new system with new coaches, teammates, terminology, and plays, and they only have five official days of practice to get it down before they're on the court. A lot of things are different. The pace is faster. The shot clock is shorter. Players are more physical, and the referees give more leeway for the game to go on. The biggest transition is just the physicality, Clark said. Everybody sort of gets physical, and sometimes it doesn't get called. I would say that's the biggest thing. I think um, one to five or every single person that we play is so, so talented. The talent level is obviously very different than it is in college. So getting used to that, no matter who steps into the game, you can never really relax because that's how competitive the league is. These transition periods come from coaches too. This wasn't the only first only the first time Clark was playing in a professional game, but also the first time Sides and her staff were coaching her on a full-time game situation. Sides said post-game Clark called for a sub at the end of the first quarter because of how tired she was. It was partly a result of the physicality of the game, but also something Sides said she should be watching. That's part of the learning experience for sides, too. She got to the point where she was just completely gassed. 
Like when she looked over at me, I thought I was going to have to grab her and help her to the sideline right there at the end of the first. We have to do better. We can't let her get out, um, get her to that point. And this article is by Dargan Southard. Optimism remains high at Iowa. After five-plus months of grueling action, May's arrival has traditionally shifted college basketball fandom into recovery mode. There's off-season news and buzz, sure, but rarely does it match in the in-season intensity required on a nightly basis. In Iowa City, though, excitement already bubbles for what's ahead. While a relentless recruiting cycle centered on the transfer portal and Iowa's strong showing there is responsible for much of that, intrigue still lingers solely from the Hawkeyes title game run now roughly a month old. The next step for Lisa Bluter's program is a topic Iowa fans happily debate with optimism. The Hawkeyes' stature in the sport post Caitlin Clark gains clarity as the days go by. Iowa's high-end acquisition of Villanova transfer Lucy Olson can be directly correlated to the culture that took center stage for months both on the court and off. Any doubts about Bluter's portal aggression or the Hawkeyes' appeal for elite talent quickly vanished. Another initial clue arrived this week with ESPN's first off-season bracketology for the year ahead. Predictions for an NCAA tournament more than 10 months away should be taken only so seriously, but it's at least a rough start, starting point for expectations that aren't clear-cut. Iowa landing as number eight seed while being tied with Indiana as the eighth-highest-seeded Big Ten team in the field, blends carryover respect with room for an underdog mentality. For as such as Clark experience signaled uncharted territory for Bluter and her entire veteran staff, Iowa has recently experienced a situation somewhat similar to this transition. Only five years ago, many wondered how the Hawkeyes would operate once elite standout Megan Gustafson departed for NWNBA after 2018-19 season. Iowa had just reached the Elite Eight for the first time since 1993, with Gustafson racking up uh, multiple player of the year accolades along the way. So it was easy to see some kind of stepped back materializing. And remember, Clark didn't commit until November of 2019, meaning that the preceding offseason had a little hype surrounding her arrival. Just a few short months after playing in the NCAA tournament as a number two seed, Iowa was included nowhere in any preseason polls or bracketologies. What Iowa did have, though, was a veteran point guard looking for one more massive splash in her final collegiate season. That was Kathleen Doyle, the Hawkeyes' emotional leader who galvanized a retooling roster that leaned into the unconvinced outside perception all year long. 
All Doyle did that season was win Big Ten Player of the Year while guiding Iowa to the host, hosting bubble with 23 wins before COVID-19 abruptly axed the NCAA tournament. Olson on board at least creates a similar blueprint. Winning conference player of the year is probably a hefty, hefty tax ask considering the West Coast talent entering the league, and Olsen won't have the in-house benefit Doyle had when it comes to crafting the cohesion Iowa needs to thrive. But the Hawkeyes boast evidence that suggests they can handle this shift better than the outside basketball world expects them to. With Iowa currently maxed out at 15 scholarships after Olsen's arrival, this is likely the exact roster Iowa will carry into next season. There are valid questions that have promising but uncemented answers. Does freshman center Ava Hyden elevate enough to allow Hannah Stuckey to move back to her natural four position? How does the starting shooting guard spot shake out, likely between Kylie Furback and Taylor McCabe? Is there a bench surge coming from an unproven underclassman or two? Just as crucial, though, it's who makes up the next wave of veteran voices. Clark, with her confidence, and Kate Martin, with her tenacity, helped redefine leadership expectations at Iowa, and void they'll leave in that regard is as large as anything else. Navigating such through such a long college basketball season is as much about people as points. Olsen's offensive responsibilities should organically fill some of that hole, especially since all indications are she's been weaved into nicely to the program already. As loud as her production is, Stulke's leadership likely won't come in the same style. It feels like as much as it will with buckets and passes, this spot is where Sydney Offholter's late season surge could pay off uh, the most next year. She's naturally ascended into a commanding role ahead of what should be her most impactful season yet. While winning games will inevitably do the best job of keeping people around with Clark gone, the table has already been set for Iowa to continue this elite women's basketball momentum. In another article written by Gus Martin, Martin avoids Ace's first cuts. Former Iowa women's basketball star Kate Martin fight for a roster spot on the reigning WNBA champion Las Vegas Aces will continue after she survived the team's initial round of cuts on Thursday. The Aces waived guard Morgan Jones and forward Bria Beal, a 2023 AP All-American honorable mention, and notable contributor on South Carolina's 2022 National Championship team. Former Hawkeye great Megan Gustafson also remains on the roster, 
after signing a two-year contract on February 1st. Martin's signing with XL Sports Management was also announced via the agency's social media on Thursday. Her former teammate, Caitlin Clark, also signed with the agency in October of 2023. Martin was drafted in the second round, 18th overall, on April 15th, but is not guaranteed to make the team. With just 12 teams and a maximum of 144 total roster spots in the association, the WNBA is arguably the most difficult professional sports league to land with a team. Teams can have up to 18 players during training camp, but must trim to just 12 by May 13th, the day before the start of the season. The Aces currently have 14 players. Of the 36 players drafted in 2023, only 15 played in a game last season, and only 8 made an opening day roster. The odds of Martin making the top 12 on the back-to-back league champions was already a tall task, but her chances have been bolstered over the last few days. Martin's prospects initially increased when WNBA legend and future Basketball Hall of uh, Famer Candace Parker announced her retirement on April 28th. And with two more players out of the running, the former Hawkeye could secure a spot in the coming days. Moving back to the editorial section, um, opinion section, I'm going to return to letters to the editor. This next one from Jim Whalen of Des Moines. Where is the presidential immunity in the Constitution? Three days after the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral argument in Donald Trump's appeal from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals rejection of his claim of immunity from prosecution for his official acts in connection with the January 6th insurrection, the Register published a Q&A with University of Iowa Law School professor Andy Gruel, who criticized the circuit court's anal- analysis of whether generally applicable criminal statutes can be used to prosecute a former president for official acts. The problem with Gruel's analysis is that he assumes that presidential immunity for official acts already exists. Otherwise, we he would not argue that it must be preserved. The plain text of the U.S. Constitution says nothing about presidential criminal immunity. Such immunity will not exist unless the Supreme Court invents it. Every president since George Washington has known that once they leave office, they could be charged with crimes involving their official acts. There is no evidence that this knowledge diminished the authority of their presidencies in any way. Until now, none has ever faced such charges, not because of doubt about whether such charges could be filed, but because no president prior to Trump has converted the Oval Office into the political equivalent of a mob clubhouse. Next, from Sonia Edinger of Iowa City, Take water consumption projections more seriously. As a 50-year resident of way Iowa government is run, big business has a green light in many ways. 
Despite recent storms, Iowa is set for water shortages long term. In fact, our aquifers are low. The enthusiasm for encouraging new data centers does not pay attention to their large use of water. However, more importantly for Iowa, the increasing desire to create ethanol ignores the fact that a gallon of ethanol requires something like three gallons of water to produce. Ethanol requires the growing of corn, using some 40% of Iowa's crops, which in turn requires larger amounts of nitrogen. This is sadly washed out all the way to the Gulf, affecting fish production badly. But the production of ethanol produces CO2, a greenhouse gas that is warming the atmosphere. This is very serious long term. Summit and other companies want to capture the CO2 gas and pipe it to supposed storage locations in other states. The impetus for their enthusiasm for threading the state with deep pipes is that they will receive large federal tax credits. The effects of these pipes are many. They remove many acres of land from farmers who get little recompense, uh, recompense for this permanent loss of land or profit from its use. They interfere with soil layers and with waterways in non-reversible ways. They carry the gas in liquefied form, but if a leak occurs, there is the possibility of asphyxiation of humans or animals who may inhale this gas. It is debatable as to how well the gas storage can be relied upon, as gas can seep out of small cracks in rock spaces, and as to whether this storage will really happen instead of the use of the gas to aid in more fracking, as has been intimated. Iowa cannot afford to be laced with these pipelines, and the Iowa Utilities Board and the administration should stop turning a blind eye to the effects of this business over the long-term health of Iowa's future. Next, from Jeff Daniels of West Des Moines, Nanny State, vape bill would hurt more than it helps. I am writing to voice my extreme opposition to House File 2677, restricting the sale of flavored nicotine vaping products. As someone who was a former smoker, it is very difficult for me to it was very difficult for me to kick the cigarette habit. I used to smoke a pack a day of unfiltered camels. Vaping has allowed me to drastically reduce my nicotine nicotine consumption. My lungs feel better and I experience less shortness of breath as well as being free from the offensive odor, tooth staining, and other byproducts of combusting tobacco, including oral and lung cancers. However, I already have had a very hard time finding vape flavors I can tolerate. While I understand the desire to prevent underage people from beginning or maintaining a nicotine habit, the proposed bill would seem to have the chief effect of effectively punishing law-abiding smokers who are of legal age. It is in my mind no different than assuming that banning flavored beer and vodka will somehow keep kids from drinking alcohol. Kids will find a way to get these products no matter how many laws are passed. Restricting tobacco sales didn't work when I was a kid even though cigarettes tasted and smelled awful 
and it probably won't work now. That's just how kids are. Instead of banning flavored vapes and punishing responsible adults who are in the vast majority and also vote, I would encourage the governor's office to instead promote programs designed to educate children and young adults not to smoke vape and possibly provide incentives not to. I believe the job of parenting should be left to the parents, not the state. We don't need more nanny state laws that infringe on the rights of adults. We need common sense enforcement of existing laws. The proposed legislation also risks putting legis legitimate vape shops out of business, which has had an add-on effect of hurting the landlords of the buildings they operate out of and losing both the jobs and the sales tax revenue they generate. With that in mind, I would urge citizens to ask Governor Reynolds to veto House File 2677 in favor of a more sensible approach to this same issue. And finally, from Len Froyan of Cedar Falls, it's all about me. The sentiments authored by Kurt Ulrich's, Ulrich in the April 28th Register bear repeating, quote, My relationship with others has never been all that solid, possibly because I don't move beyond the notion of me all that easily, and perhaps because I love the notion of people very much, but the reality of them is not easily appreciated never truly has been, end quote. Maybe a truthful inventory of our neighborly attitudes and actions would likely bear witness to his characterization of American culture. And I'm going to continue on with the opinion section. Uh, this one is a Your Turn by jo Jacob Olson. Remember the minority when defending religious freedom. On April 10th, Iowa celebrated its 11th annual Religious Freedom Day at the state capitol and at Drake University. After men from the Sikh community performed a hymn in the rotunda, Governor Kim Reynolds signed a proclamation that states in part that, quote, we all benefit from a pluralistic society where all people can work together for the common good. It is imperative that we remember the words pluralistic and all people. After all, religious freedom is not a concept just for Christians, but for everybody. This is something Rekabasu missed in her recent critique. Christianity is not under attack, but Kim Reynolds governs like it is uh, from an April 21st article of Reynolds signing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act into law. The new law means that Iowa cannot infringe on the free exercise of any religion unless it has a compelling government interest to do so. This includes the free exercise of the Hindu, the Buddhist, and even the member of the Satanic Temple. Any means any. All means all. Minority religions often find themselves mistreated by those in the majority, and we must protect them. Unfortunately, we have lately seen a rise of mistreatment of religious minorities in the United States. According to the Council on American-Islamic Relations anti-Muslim bias last year was the highest it's ever been. Quote, in the 28 years 
C-A-I-R, has tracked hate, unquote. Disturbing anti-Semitism is also on the rise. According to a Department of Justice report, a university student in New York recently pleaded guilty to posting threats against the local Jewish community, threats which one person in the report described as graphic and disturbing, unquote. In Arizona, Native Americans faced turning over Oak Flat, a long-held sacred site, to a large, quote, foreign, foreign mining corporation, unquote, due to a ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruling in March. Remarkably, a coalition of tribal nations, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, and other faiths are showing support to defend this site. This support of Oak Flat is the spirit of Reynolds' proclamation. It is in the spirit of religious freedom. This same spirit is also captured in a quote by Joseph Smith, a leader of a small religion in the U.S. in the early 19th century. He said, quote, I am just as ready to die in defending the rights of a Presbyterian, a Baptist, or a good man of any denomination for that same principle which would trample upon the rights of our religion, would trample upon the rights of the Roman Catholics, or of any other denomination who may be unpopular and too weak to defend themselves, unquote. The purpose of religious freedom is to protect the minority and to preserve the pluralistic nature of America's and Iowa's religion, religious and non-religious landscape. As one atheist moderator at Drake remarked, quote, there wouldn't be atheists without religious freedom, unquote. There is a need for religious freedom in the United States, yet so often it is the minority protecting the minority. Let us remember that this country does not concern itself with just one religion. Let us continue to advocate for the religious rights of all, specifically and especially the religious minority. And another article this one written by Savannah Kuchar. Organization aims to boost abortion rights beyond ballot measures. Voters in a slew of states could see abortion protections explicitly on the ballot this year in the form of proposed constitutional amendments. To be effective, though, Democrats say they'll also need to secure state house victories in 2024. The Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, an organization focused on electing Democrats at state level, said in a memo Thursday that these referendums, quote, can be an immediate or initial fix, but the long-term building of power in state legislators is the most effective way, unquote, to secure abortion access for Americans across the country. Abortion rights advocates have been on ballot measures winning streak at, since uh, 2022 when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, a 1973 case guaranteeing the constitutional right to an abortion. 
But at some of those successful measures have faced Republican-led challenges after Election Day and with several states not allowing for citizen-led ballot initiatives. DLCC President Heather Williams told USA Today the organization's focus goes beyond ballot measures. Quote, these measures are an important piece, Williams added, but we know that without also building power in the state houses, we're not doing enough. We've got to do it all, unquote. The DLCC announced a $60 million budget in January to boost candidates and reach out to voters about abortion rights, though it has not yet announced any new investments into this focus. But the group and other advocates are sounding the alarm on reproductive rights in 2024 and warning that the ballot measures are not an end-all solution. At least four states will include on November's ballot a measure to enshrine abortion access in their constitution, and related initiatives continue in about a dozen other states. But, Williams said, the fight is also in state legislators. In some of those states, including Florida and Missouri, Republicans hold a state house supermajority, making the implementation of any measure that passes potentially complicated. Another reason to pay attention to control of state house, Williams said, 24 states do not offer residents the option of having a citizen-led ballot initiative. On that list is North Carolina, where abortions are banned after 12 weeks with exceptions. But Williams said states like Romanos will not get left out of attempts to increase abortion access. Quote, it is being done by Democrats in power in the state houses, she said, pointing to places like Michigan, where a Democrat trifecta expanded abortion access with its Reproductive Health Act earlier this year. Meanwhile, the DLCC will be watching voter behavior in 2024 as guidance for future elections on expanding Democratic majorities across the map, Williams said. Quote, understanding how people show up, how it energizes folks, how abortion plays in these communities, will be an important learning lesson. And under Voices and Commentary, this is a Your, your Turn column from David W. Leslie. Colleges often can do little to meet protesters' demands. Campus protests are as old as universities themselves. The first university at Bologna, Italy, in fact, was the creation of students who sought independence from the city's governors. Students at America's colonial colleges protested against policies and practices with food riots and pranks. When civil rights protests in the 50s and 60s spread across the nation, students sat in lunch counters in the South, marched with Martin Luther King Jr., and worked against segregation and discrimination policies. The free speech movement at Berkeley spread across the nation, as did 
sometimes violent, protests against the Vietnam War. Petitions were mounted to force university endowments to divest from companies doing business in South Africa or from companies complicit in petroleum production. College presidents as far back as Nathaniel Eaton at Harvard in 1639 have lost their jobs at the hands of student protesters. He had a policy of beating miscreants. Eaton was too strict. Clark Kerr at Berkeley was not strict enough in dealing with the free speech protests, according to California's governor, Ronald Reagan. Kerr was sacked, commenting, I left the presidency just as I entered it, fired with enthusiasm. Protests on the campus have set major changes beyond college grounds, college's grounds by bringing intensity and attention to many causes. On the other hand, they have often proven futile as students' attention wanes when they can't achieve instant results. The current wave of protests against Israel's war in Gaza seems focused on divestment of university endowments from companies, quote, doing business with or supporting Israel's uh, defense capabilities. The merits of the case aside, and it is indeed a complicated mess to untangle, divestment is a blunt and misdirected instrument fraught with legal implications and not likely to affect either corporate practices or Israel's actions. Trustees function as fiduciaries whose principal duty is to beneficiaries of the trust. They are obliged to follow the prudent man rule by exercising care and common sense to preserve the principal and income of the trust corpus of income of investments. Trusts that support universities called endowments are all unique. Some are bound by donors' terms. Others are so large as to be managed by separate corporate entities, Harvard, for example. Presidents may have little or no say in how a board of trustees manages the trust assets because they are only one among equals on the board and may not even have a vote. Trustees can either sell stocks or use what leverage they have to vote their shares in corporate decisions. Since many endowments are invested in independently managed funds, Universities may have no direct path from stock ownership to influence over corporate policy. Even if they could assert their values directly, they would be liable to accountability for their prudence as fiduciaries. They also may have no moral problem with Israel's self-defense to begin with. Whether Israel has responded disproportionately or with legitimate fear for the nation's and faith's existence is a judgment far removed from the management of university endowments. Students may freely protest, but they may neither disrupt university operations nor damage university property without consequence. Presidents are hemmed in except except to the extent that they can fairly act to protect life, property, and the teaching-learning functions of their institutions. They can, of course, speak powerfully to the concerns of student protesters and should take stands in support of justice, peace, and reconciliation. But they should also direct students to the most culpable parties in the war. Those would be the politicians ordering and directing the violence. Colleges' endowment funds have little or nothing to do with the war except in the most indirect way.
And from uh, <clears throat> Nation in the World, Madonna gives free concert in Brazil for a massive crowd, which is nice. Thousands gathered on Rio de Janeiro's famous Copacabana Beach on Saturday ahead of a free open-air concert by pop star Madonna that was expected to attract some 1.5 million people. The Brazilian show marked the end of Madonna's Greatest Hits World Tour celebration, which started in late 2023. Rio's city government said it would deploy thousands of police officers around the concert area, managing the crowds with a strategy similar to its plan for the city's famous New Year's Eve celebration. With temperatures around 82 degrees Fahrenheit, firefighters on Saturday sprayed water to cool some fans already gathered next to the, quote, material girl singer stage. Drinking water was also being distributed for free. Brazilian authorities stepped up their vigilance after a young Brazilian fan died at a concert by Taylor Swift last year due to heat exhaustion. Rio authorities expected about 1.5 million people to show up for the concert on the iconic beach, where crowds have previously exceeded 1 million for concerts by the Rolling Stones and Rod Stewart. Madonna arrived in the city earlier in the week, and fans have congregated around her hotel. Rio state and city government said they spent 20 million reyes or $3.9 million on the concert, while the rest was financed by private sponsors. The authorities estimated the concert could bring about 300 million reyes to Rio's economy. And today is Cinco de Mayo, so enjoy. Uh... Another article from the front page of the Nation and the World. Buffett says Berkshire will be in good hands. Thousands line up to see legendary investor out of Omaha, Nebraska. Warren Buffett assured Berkshire Hathaway shareholders on Saturday that the executives expect to succeed him were ready for the job and he heaped praise on Apple, although Berkshire trimmed its position on the iPhone maker. Speaking at Berkshire's annual meeting, the legendary investor paid tribute to his late business partner, Charlie Munger, and said he expected the conglomerate's cash pile, now a record $189 billion, $189 billion to keep growing. The meeting was the 60th for Buffett, who since 1965 transformed Berkshire from a failing textile company into an 862 billion colossus owning the BNSS Railroad, Geico Car Insurance, Dairy Queen, and dozens of other businesses. Buffett who's 93, told shareholders that Vice Chairman Greg Abel and Ajit Jain have proven themselves the right people to lead Berkshire after he departs. 
Abel, who is designated Buffett's successor as chief executive in 2021, and Jane, who is, has directly overseed Berkshire's operating subsidiaries since 2018. Quote, when you get got someone like Greg and Ajit, why settle for me? Buffett said. It has worked out extremely well. Buffett said he would want Abel, 61, upon becoming chief executive, to have final say on capital allocation decisions regarding Berkshire's portfolio of public stocks. Investors had long considered Todd Combs and Ted Wessler, who managed part of Berkshire's $335.9 billion equity portfolio, leading candidates to manage more or all of it. The meeting, part of a weekend Buffett calls Woodstock for Capitalists, it was the first since Munger died in November at age 99. Buffett described Munger, his longtime, his, his friend and foil, as the architect of today's Berkshire. Buffett gave no sign he plans to step aside, <clears throat> telling shareholders, quote, I feel fine, while joking he shouldn't take on four-year uh, employment contracts. Before the meeting, Berkshire announced first quarter results, including a 39% jump in operating profit to a record $11.2 billion. In a surprise, Berkshire reported it had sold about 13% of its Apple shares, reducing the value of, of its stake to $135.4 billion from $174.3 billion. Apple's stock price fell 11% in the quarter. The sale was the main reason Berkshire's cash hoard soared. Buffett said cash might grow to $200 billion this quarter, reflecting the risks he sees from high stock market valuations and geopolitical conflicts. Despite reducing the Apple stake, Buffett praised the company, saying it was an even better business than two of Berkshire's oldest and largest investments, American Express and Coca-Cola. The iPhone has one of the greatest products, and it may be the greatest product of all time, Buffett said, with Apple chief executive Tim Cook in the audience. Berkshire invested in Apple in 2016, and the normally tech-phobic Buffett came to view it as a consumer goods company with strong pricing power and devoted customers. While some investors have expressed concern that Apple comprised too much of Berkshire's equity portfolio, Buffett said Apple would remain his country's, or company's biggest stock investment barring unforeseen events. Abel, meanwhile, pledged to fight lawsuits sinking tens of billions of dollars from Berkshire's Pacific Corp uti utility unit over o Oregon's wildflowers and, or wildfires in 2020. He described it as a substantial challenge and said many claims were unfounded. Shareholders reelected 
uh, all 14 Berkshire directors and rejected six shareholders' proposals, all of which Buffett opposed. Berkshire's stock is up 23% over last year, while that lags a standard and poor's 500's 25% gain. Berkshire has risen 218% over the last decade versus the S&P's 172% gain. Buffett said on Saturday that Berkshire Hathaway sold its entire holding in media and entertainment company Paramount Global at a loss, and he took sole responsibility for the decision. It was 100% my decision, and we've sold it all, and we lost quite a bit of money, Buffett said. Berkshire held 63.3 million Paramount Class B shares at the end of 2023, or about 10.1% of the company. Buffett said he also expects the U.S. government to increase taxes to tackle widening fiscal deficits rather than reduce spending. Quote, they may decide that someday they don't want the fiscal deficit to be this large because that has some important consequences. So they may not want to decrease spending and they may decide they'll take a larger percentage of what we own and we'll pay it, he said. The Congressional Budget Office has estimated in its latest long-term budget projections, projections rather, federal deficits will rise to 8.5% of gross domestic product in fiscal 2054 year from 5.5% in fiscal 2024. U.S. budget deficits are expected to deteriorate if tax cuts introduced in 2017 are renewed next year. Thousands lined up in a raw, rainy weather to enter the arena, sometimes several hours in advance. When doors opened at 7 a.m., many ran for the best seats. The weekend also featured an exhibit hall for shareholders to buy goodies such as Berkshire T-shirts and Squishmallow toys at exhibits by Berkshire-owned companies. Serena Lamb, 32, an investment manager who traveled with 40 others from Hong Kong, said she arrived at 2.30 a.m. Quote, I want to see Warren Buffett, she said. I want to get his perspective about Japanese stocks. I flew over 25 hours for this. And moving on to the life section This is an article from the Great American Home and Garden Refresh section, Have You Fallen in Love with Dahlias? Tips for Turning Your Garden into a Stunner. In summer, the Dahlia Shed's Instagram feed kicks off into high bloom. It's the season of abundance on the small farm in Middleton, Rhode Island, set to the backdrop of the sunrise Farmer Amy Rodriguez walks through the field showing row after row of opening blooms in pinks, peaches, red, purples, and yellows. There are photographs of the trusty John Deere tractor loaded with buckets of blooms. And then there's the self-serve farm stand filled with single stems and bouquets waiting to grace kitchen tables. But for a lot of people who fall in love with dahlias, 
There comes a point where stems in the vase aren't enough. They want the field, or at least a small garden, of flowers in their own backyard. And for this, she sells tubers. How to get started with dahlia flowers. There are two ways to plant dahlia tubers. The first way is by seed. It's cheap. They're relatively easy to start. Florid Flower Farm, a Washington-based farm that sells dahlia seed blends, recommends starting them inside four to eight weeks before your last frost. There is a surprise to this method that some growers like and others don't. Dahlias don't grow true to seed, meaning it's hard to predict what color or shape bloom those seeds will grow into. The other way solves, uh, solves for that, tubers. Every dahlia plant produces tubers, a thick starchy root underground that can be planted out in the spring. Tubers come back true and hundreds of varieties, some rare, have been cultivated by growers like Rodriguez. This is how most growers start their dahlias. How to buy dahlia tubers. Dahlia tubers can be found for sale at the big box garden centers, but, they're, um, but they've become more popular. People have increasingly turned to small growers like Rodriguez. There are a few reasons to shop small. One, if you're looking for one of a particular variety that stunned you, the smaller growers are more likely to have that specific one. And two, the smaller growers often have higher health standards for their tubers. Quote, I think growers are careful to purchase tubers from small growers as tubers that are flown in typically and have a reputation of carrying virus um, that I think growers are careful to purchase tubers from smaller growers as tubers that are flown in typically have had the reputation of carrying virus such as crown gal or leaf gal that is spread during division. Rodriguez said, purchasing from a small grower, that grower has the eye on the tuber versus it being grown and divided in mass quantities. Third, there's a difference in how they are prepared for planting. At the big box stores, most dahlias are sold as tuber clumps, a mass of all the tubers a plant produced last growing season. But any of those tubers with what's called the uh, an eye can be cut off to create a single tuber. Dividing it into single tuber and eye means the dahlia has less competition for food while growing and leads to a more productive plant. What to know when you start planting dahlias? The first thing to know is that it's addictive. You won't want to stop with one. Once I started out with dahlias, I was hooked, Rodriguez said, adding more and more varieties to the field. The second thing to know is that size of the tuber doesn't matter. As long as it's in good condition, not rotted, too dried out, and with an intact neck, the skinny part, and one eye, it will grow. When the soil is over 60 degrees, plant it in a sunny spot, according to Floret Farms, and don't water until the first green leaves are poking through the soil. When the plant is 12 inches tall, pinch the top, the four inches, oh, when the plant is 12 inches tall, pinch the top four inches off for a bigger plant. Then when the bloom starts around August, just keep picking. The more you pick, the more flowers it will produce.
kind of a complicated thing, but they're beautiful flowers. Well, in the short time we have left, I just want to announce that longtime Des Moines Pizza Restaurant on Ingersoll Avenue has closed. Gusto Pizza Bar, the longtime pizza restaurant in Des Moines, closed its doors on Thursday. Co-owner owner, Tony Lemo told the Des Moines Register, We have truly put our hearts in just about every ounce of energy into this location, Lemo told the Register. It's time to spend more time with my family, garden, and of course, Apasto, his Italian restaurant in Sherman Hill. The, jo- uh, the trio of friends converted one West Des Moines location, Universe 8950 University Avenue, into El Guapo's Tequila Tacos in 2019 after a six-year run at as Gusto Pizza. Guapo's closed in March. A Johnston location of Gusto Pizza closed in late 2019. The West Des Moines location of Gusto Pizza in uh, on University Avenue closed at Clock Tower Square in 2022. And that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Mark Morrison, and my partner at the microphone has been Susan Ford. Earlier, you heard Dave Stutz and Seth Anderson. You can listen to Iowa's programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org.